I thought I was going to be late. Wow, there's a lot of people for the Camel Express today. I hope I get a seat. I'm really excited. But I'm in a big, big rush today because I have exciting news I want to share with my cousin, Aaron. He's, he was a big oil shop. I don't know if you've gone to his oil shop. And cousin David, he's a great shepherd. Oh, do you want to hear the good news also? Yeah. Oh, okay, let me share the good news. So, my cousins and I have been following this person named Jesus. We've been trying to figure out what he's saying and learn from his words. So, it all started several weeks ago. He was preaching in this big, big hill, and he did this miracle, and he gave us bread to eat. And he said, he is the bread of life. And he'll provide for us. Wow. Then he said, after the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, when the lights went off, he said, He is the light of the world and He will lead us to God. But, but it didn't stop there. He also said, He is the gate and the shepherd and He will protect us. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. But. You know what? I didn't really do that well in school, so I had a hard time understanding. But like my grandmother said, I prayed about it. We prayed and we thought about it. But there are a couple of questions that we couldn't really figure out. Well, you see, first question is, what happens after the bread's done? I've been saving this one piece of bread from the hill for weeks now, but this bread is not going to last forever. What happens when the bread's done? <laughs> then cousin Aaron, he owns the oil company, right? The little shop. And he said, what happens when the oil is all gone? the light is going to go off. Oil does not flow forever. Right, I was scratching my head. Then you know what Cousin Dave said? He's a shepherd. He said, sometimes, sometimes the gate breaks. Sometimes the shepherd's not there. What happens if the shepherd gets tired? What do we do then? These are big questions I did not have answers to. But something happened. I think I saw some of you there. Yesterday, were you at Lazarus' funeral? Yeah, you were there also. I saw you. Lazarus, he's my dear friend. He's, he's the brother of Mary and Martha. You may know him. He got really, really sick one day. And he actually died. Oh, but don't be sad. Don't be sad. There's happy news. He rose again. Because what happened is, after the fourth day, Jesus came. I didn't even know Jesus knew Lazarus. He came, and he was so, so sad. He was crying then something amazing happened. Jesus 
He said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will have life, even if you die. I didn't know what that meant. But you know what he did? He told us, open the tomb. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus was alive. Do you believe it? You guys not surprised? Yeah! Lazarus, my friend, is alive and well. It was amazing. But here's the part that's truly blew my mind. Because Jesus answered our questions. Right? All this time, we were thinking about the things that Jesus gives us. Oh, what if the bread disappears? Oh, what if the light goes away? What if the gate breaks? What if the shepherd sleeps? But what Jesus was saying is, it's him. If he could defeat death, death ends everything. That he could conquer anything. It's him. He's the one who's going to give us all we need. He's the one who's going to show us the way. He's the one. Jesus is the one who's going to protect us. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Can you imagine that? All this time we were thinking about all the different things that Jesus is going to give us. But Jesus was talking about himself. When we thought about that, we're like, wow, this Jesus person is not what we expected. There's something special about this person. Because how can he do that? So I have to go back to my cousins and tell them the news so we know the, we have these answers. But we have to find out more about Jesus. Oh, I see the camel coming. But you know what my grandmother said, when you have good news, you have to share it, right? So let's pray. Open them. Shut them. Oh God, thank you for the good news. Which delight. That was the second part. <laughs> Open them. Shut them. Thank you for Jesus. The resurrection and the life. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Open them, close them, give your hands a clap. Open them, close them, let's pray. Dear God, thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. You are the Jesus of today and tomorrow, and you will provide for us and lead us to God. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So all kids, you can work on your activity sheets at home or here. If you do not have any, you can see Ms. Catherine, he has extra for us. Okay, thank you. Our scripture reading for today is Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18, to chapter 9, verse 1. Listen now to the word of the Lord. My joy is gone, 
Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters, in my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, this day that you have made, and we ask once again that we might hear your words, and in the hearing, be encouraged and challenged to walk more faithfully with you. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Most of you have probably heard about the recent climate report that was released by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that came out on Monday. It labeled our current environmental situation a code red for humanity. Some people may think it's just one more warning about global warming, but I found it especially sobering. For anyone who may still be doubting, the report concludes that it is unequivocal that human activity has warmed the planet. As if to add further support to the report, we've all been hearing more frequently about extreme weather events, of extreme heat and drought conditions, about the unprecedented flooding in Germany and Turkey, the wildfires in California, Greece, and even Siberia. NASA reported this week that smoke from the wildfires in Siberia traveled nearly 2,000 miles to reach the North Pole for the first time in history. What I found most alarming from the report is that the latest modeling projections indicate that even if we were somehow able magically to stop all carbon emissions today, temperatures will still continue to rise over the next three decades. Three decades. It's like we're on a runaway train and we can apply the brakes right now, but we're moving so fast that it will take decades before we can come to a stop.
I suppose it's possible that scientists will find some as of yet undiscovered new technologies in the coming decades that can help to bring about change and turn things around more quickly. But as it stands now, the only small glimmer of hope is that if we as a planet make a concerted effort to reduce carbon emissions over the next few decades, our grandchildren might see some benefits. I don't know about you, but I have very little confidence that the governments of the world will come together and plan and carry out something that will take three decades before any benefits might be realized. What politician or government would commit to a course of action asking for massive sacrifices of its people that will have no immediate benefits and likely be overturned by the next administration anyway? How many of us are willing to make the kind of significant personal sacrifices today so that our grandchildren 30 years from now might have a planet that is slightly better off. It's an existential crisis for humanity, actually far greater than the pandemic we are currently facing. And yet it's very hard to see the world coming together with the kind of resolve that will be necessary to tackle it. The problem itself has been buried under the current pandemic. In fact, the current pandemic has made us ignore many other urgent issues, but they are not going away. In New Brunswick, for example, there has been an increase in gun violence, as in many parts of the country, but it hardly makes the news anymore. We hear about the imminent takeover by the Taliban in Afghanistan, or about the earthquake in Haiti yesterday, or about the ongoing human rights in many parts of the world and hundreds and hundreds of other challenges around the world. And at the same time, I know all of us are just trying to manage our own families with school, with work, our aging parents, and our own health concerns. It's hard to find the energy and the compassion for our own families, let alone for global concerns. It's been exhausting and overwhelming and depressing. Given all that's been going on in the world, in the country and in the state, as well as that's all that's going on in the life of our church, and for me in my own life, I could not help but be drawn to the words of Jeremiah this morning. He's facing different challenges than we are. But listen again to verse 18. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Doesn't that accurately describe what many of you have been feeling lately or have felt in the last 18 months? Certainly I know I've been feeling it. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. In Jeremiah's case, he's been preaching for 40 years, warning his people that unless they return to the ways of God, 
that judgment and exile would come. But the people did not listen. And Jeremiah lays bare for us here his emotions at this outcome. He's crushed by the situation the people have made for themselves. He's quite unusual for a prophet. Most prophets don't reveal their personal pain. And so passages like today have earned Jeremiah the nickname, the weeping prophet. If nothing else, he reminds us that it is okay to express what is in our hearts honestly. We need not always be so careful to edit our emotions and to carefully craft every word, especially in our prayers before God. If your prayers lately are, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me, you're in good company. In fact, the verses that follow are unclear as to who is doing the speaking. It could be Jeremiah, but it could also be God. The ambiguity suggests that the sorrow is as real for God as it is for Jeremiah and as it is for you. We might say that Jeremiah's grief is an embodiment of the grief that God himself is feeling. And it's no small sorrow. There is grief beyond healing, a heart full of darkness and mourning, and so many tears shed that there are no more tears left. The grief and anguish is so intense and the desire is to cry day and night for the wound of my of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. As an embodiment of God's grief, this is quite a revelation. I know that some people will wrongly portray the God of the Old Testament as one who is wrathful and angry, while the God of Jesus is gracious and loving. People will casually remark that the God of the Old Testament is stern, a God of law and judgment, while the God of the New Testament is one like a compassionate father, forgiving and gentle. It's as if they're two completely different gods. But God is one. And God does not change. God is and always must be angry about sin. God is light, and in him there can be no darkness at all. But passages like this remind us that while God may be angry about sin, the flip side of that anger is grief. I know that most of us, most of the time when we are angry, even justifiably angry, because of a wrong that has been committed against us or we perceive a wrong that has been committed against us, we seek satisfaction or vindication or even revenge for that wrong. I can remember, for example, just driving sometimes and having someone drive by me like super fast, even though I'm speeding a little bit, and angrily thinking like that person should get off the road. That person should not be allowed to drive. And then having this incredible satisfaction about a mile down the road when I see that car pulled over getting a ticket. He got what he deserves, at least in my mind. My anger dissolves and I am satisfied 
that justice has been served. During this pandemic, I have heard people taking satisfaction when people on the other side of their political views get sick with COVID. For example, some of those who oppose vaccines and mask mandates, they're glad when someone gets sick who's been vaccinated, as if that proves that they were right. Likewise, those who support vaccines are glad when those who oppose vaccines catch COVID and get sick and regret not having gotten the vaccine. There is a kind of hateful satisfaction at seeing others get what they think they deserve. I know that sort of smug satisfaction is increasingly common in our current contentious environment. But as God and Jeremiah demonstrate, such posturing should have no place in our hearts and in our community. The proper response to catastrophic judgment, illness, and sin is not, I told you so, you got what you deserved. Rather, it is grief and sorrow and weeping. In Jeremiah's day, the people repeatedly ignored his message. They consistently rejected God. They hurt one another and are headed toward a self-destruction largely of their own making. And yet God finds no pleasure in seeing the people suffer for their actions. Ezekiel 33 and elsewhere, it tells us, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked may turn from his way and live and live. God is not sitting around and waiting to gleefully zap someone who does wrong. Rather, God is waiting for repentance, grieving at the unnecessary suffering and pain that the people have brought upon themselves. The people have some sense of the dire situation that they are in. The entire harvest is gone. Both the early grain harvest at the beginning of summer as well as the latter harvest at the end of summer. They are facing an uncertain future, a winter without harvest crops. It's natural, of course, in times of suffering and catastrophe to ask these kinds of questions. Even Jesus cried, upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And maybe you're asking these sorts of questions that Jeremiah asked. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is the Lord not in New Jersey? Is her king not in her? Isn't there a bomb in Gilead? Isn't there a bomb in New Brunswick? Are there no physicians here? The answers are, of course there are. Of course the Lord is here. Of course there is a bomb. In Gilead, it was a center of medical uh, clinics. The bomb of Gilead was well known as a treatment for various illnesses. Both the Lord and healing are there and available. But the people have turned away. And God himself asks, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and their foreign idols. God is present, as is healing. 
but the people have chosen to set up idols instead. They have rejected God and the healing that only God can provide. And because the people have refused treatment, judgment and exile and death is all that is left. And that is why there is so much grief on the part of God and of Jeremiah. And this, it seems to me, is the mark of a true community of faith. We must chastise the people for their sins. We must be frank about the realities of our sins. But at the same time, we must also grieve and suffer with them, not against them. Instead of taking delight at being right or in our own self-righteousness and delivering judgment, like Jeremiah, like God, we instead grieve with those who are suffering, even if that suffering is self-inflicted. Isn't this what Jesus did and taught? He was clear about judgment and sin, but he was also a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and he repeatedly was moved by compassion to heal. To those who reached out to him, even in broken faith, he forgave, he cleansed, he healed. Those of you who have children, I know that you understand this very deeply. When your child makes a bad decision and suffers for it, deserving that suffering, don't you also grieve? You might be angry, of course, that they didn't listen to you. You know that you were right, but aren't you also grieving with and for them? In his book, Now and Then, Frederick Bigner wrote this, to love another as you love a child is to become vulnerable in a whole new way. It is no longer only through what happens to yourself that the world can hurt you, but through what happens to the one you also love. When it comes to the hurt of a child you love, you are all but helpless. In one sense, because God is our father and we his children, when we hurt, when we suffer, even the suffering of our own making, God is all but helpless in his pain. And I think it is as we grieve and grieve together that we will begin to see the glimmers of genuine hope. Not superficial happiness, but lasting, enduring hope. And the hope isn't that my weeping will stop or that it will end quickly or magically be wiped away, that everything will somehow be made well once again. Instead, it's a deeper, more enduring hope that sustains me even as I weep with no end in sight. Peter Gomes, in his book, The Scandalous Gospel of Jesus, says this, a hope worth having is forged upon the anvil of adversity. Hope is not merely an optimistic view that somehow everything will turn out all right in the end if everyone just does as we do. Hope is the more rugged, the more muscular view that even if things don't turn out all right and aren't all right, we endure and 
we endure through and beyond the times that disappoint or threaten or destroy us. Even if things don't turn out all right, we endure through and beyond. That's the kind of hope I want to have. I'm at an age now where I really understand that I cannot fix most things that are broken in my life and in the lives of the people that I love. A lot of things just are not going to turn out right anymore. I see people around me, for example, who get sick, and I pray, and some get better, but many don't. A lot of things in my life are not going to turn out right, no matter how hard I try, no matter how much I pray. But I want to have a hope that endures through and beyond the times that disappoint or threaten or destroy me. And I want that same kind of hope for you and for our church. I know that we as a people, we don't like unhappiness. We don't want discomforts. We don't want sorrow and weeping. I know that the American faith is especially and incredibly optimistic with the can-do attitude. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. But Jeremiah challenges us that perhaps we are in one of those times when we may just need to weep for a while. We need not be hasty in trying to get over it. I am resisting the urge, even right now, to not move too quickly to a cheerful conclusion. In worship, I think we need to see the splendor of God's sorrow and grief as well as God's glory and power. After all, isn't that what the cross is all about? We need to know his pain as well as his joy if we are to sustain a love for all of God's creation, for all that is broken in the world, including ourselves. So perhaps this is a time when we need to look at the world and our lives and just take the time to weep and to lament. We can join Jesus as he wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. We can join Jesus as he wept over a city that he loved, a city that rejected him. We can join the Apostle Paul as he wept over those who became the enemies of the cross. We can join Rachel as she wept for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. And we can join Jeremiah and our God in weeping over the suffering that we have brought upon ourselves. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Please pray with me. God, we confess that we are a people that want an easy and happy faith. One that is always cheerful without sorrow. And yet we are reminded today and throughout the scriptures that grieving is a part 
a large part of our faith and what it means to be faithful to you and to one another. Help us in our grieving to not lose hope. Help us in our grieving to worship and to enter more deeply into your heart. May this time of grieving lead us to a deeper faith, a greater love, and a more sure hope. Help us to know that there is indeed a bomb in Gilead and here in New Brunswick because you are here and that even in our grieving, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear for you are with us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.